From Community Public Radio, this is the CPR News. From New York, I'm Don DeBar. Today we go to Moscow to speak with commentator and analyst Mark Sloboda. Mark, uh, welcome, and uh, we'd like to give an update from you on what's been going on in and around Ukraine and in Russia and all of the things related to this mess that's going on. Hey, Don, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and pleasure to be with you on CPR. It's our pleasure also. Okay, so in the last few days, um, the leader of the U.S.-backed regime in Kiev, Zelensky, um, says that the war for Donbass has begun. Well, I got some news to break to him. <laughs> the war uh, for Donbass began eight years ago when when the U- U.S. backed by Don Putsch seized power in the country, right. violently unconstitutionally overthrew the government, and then began a civil conflict to subjugate the east of the country to their seizure of power in Kiev. Uh, and it's certainly been going on for the last two months, uh, you know, at an escalated level uh, since the Russian intervention, primarily to secure the entirety of the Donbass uh, so that uh, the people there no longer have to live under uh, terror and shelling uh, and, you know, the 15,000 plus death count uh, of the people there does not go even higher. Um, but um, there's no question that there is a the, the Russian military has announced that essentially phase two of their military intervention or special military operation, as they call it, uh, is is well underway. Right. And what this means is that the um, after an initial degradation of the Kiev regime's military around the, the country, the, the uh, you know, near annihilation of their air force, the suppression of, uh, I would not say all, but the vast majority of their air defense, the removal of their offensive capa- capability, the tying up of a lot of their forces in several of their big cities, um, and most importantly, the um, envelopment um, of the majority of the Ukrainian regular uh, armed forces where they were positioned in Donbass, the outer fringes of Donbass administrative regions, poised for an attack on Donetsk and Lugansk, um, they have now effectively been surrounded, right? There was a push from the north, uh, from the uh, Kharkov area south, and a push um, from the south, north, um, from the Kherson region out of Crimea, and uh, essentially now the cauldron, as they call it in Russian military terms, is complete, an envelopment. And there are some 40 to 100,000 Ukrainian regular military there. Uh, no one knows exactly how many. Um, I was seeing numbers of 100,000 um, before the conflict began. Uh, certainly, there already has been some degradation of that number there. Um, but um, also, uh, a significant development uh, was uh, the essentially Mariupol uh, has been liberated or fallen, uh, depending on your perspective. This last port city uh, in the southeast of the Donbass region, uh, effectively cutting. Uh, 
the Kiev regime off from the Sea of Azov uh, completely. Um, this uh, city uh, had Mariupol, uh, known historically for having a very high uh, Greek-Ukrainian uh, population. Um, they originally went for the Donbass uh, right. in 2014. In the referendum. Uh, in a referendum, right. right, in the in the, the you know the uprising against the new regime that seized power in a referendum. Uh, but uh, Azov was brought in and they were conquered. There was a massacre there that occurred uh, around the police station. The local police had sided uh, with um, you know uh, the people as it were, and the uh, the Azov neo-Nazi uh, death squad was brought in, uh, suppressed that, uh, uh, you know, conquered the city, um, and uh, then their national headquarters was put there, basically to keep the Azov jackboot on the people of Mariupol's right. neck, um, you know, to keep them under control. Um you know, because of the economic and, and strategic importance of, yeah, the, of this city. The geostrategic, particularly. This is their outpost yeah. pretty much into the eastern yeah. part of the country. That's right. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, that was restive all through uh, this time. Um, and um, it was one of the initial targets uh, in phase one and is probably the Ukrainian city that has definitely seen the most devastation. Right. Um, the people there's no love lost between the majority of the people of Mariupol um, and Azov. Right. They hate each other. Right. I mean, of right. course, there is a certain percentage of the population, uh, you know, that uh, some of them brought in, some of them originally there, you know, that sided with the Maidan and everything. But I, I don't think it's it's, uh, uh, you know, uh, unreasonable to say that some 80 percent of the population was not happy there. It doesn't mean they wanted to be caught up in a war zone. Uh, but uh, they they certainly did not like is off. Um, and there are so many reports coming out uh, from the, you know, the, the Russian um, movements on the city of that uh, the civilians were not allowed to use the humanitarian corridors by Azov. And more than that, they were actually uh, snipers were set up on residential buildings, factories, stores, and anyone trying to flee the city was shot. And there's there's far too many accounts uh, to dismiss this as some type of war propaganda. I have seen dozens and dozens of interviews, and I personally uh, uh, know people um, who, who have family there who have recounted the same thing before they lost contact with them in the, in the early days of March. Yep. Um, so um, we've also emerged in the last few days uh, evidence um, by uh, you know the Russian forces uh, as they move forward, um, the uh, members of the regular Ukrainian military there, possibly some Azov members, um, had obviously been approaching Russian forces with a white flag of surrender, and were shot in the back. Um, and uh, just just today, um, I got uh, reports. Um, that um, five uh, members of of the Ukrainian forces there, it's unclear exactly uh, you know, what their composition was. Were they Azov? Were they regular military? Were they Marines or what? But five of them did manage to escape and surrender yesterday. And they brought with them 
copies of the documents that were signed by the deputy head of the Ukrainian uh, National uh, Defense Mobilization, um, the National Guard, um, which is essentially Azov. Right. Um, and the order was that if anyone uh, from any of the Ukrainian uh, military forces, and you have to remember that the entire pop male population and no small part of the female population is conscripted at this point, right. uh, for, as, as the, the conscription age was actually lowered to 16. 16, so they're, I know. They're, they're using child soldiers, 16 yes. to 60. Which is a um, war crime if, all by itself, by the way. Yeah, yes. that's war, yeah. Um, that they were to be, anyone tried to surrender, they were to be uh, summarily executed by Azov. And that's it. And that backs up uh, a lot of what uh, we have been seeing. Anyway, so after the last month of, uh, month, more than a month of, of conflict, the Azov, the, the resistance, uh, the Kiev regime forces in the city are now restricted to one small area, and that's all that's left. And this is the Azov Stahl steel plant um, in Mariupol. It is one of the major industrial areas, not just in the Donbass, but in all of Ukraine, if not the major uh, one. It is a sprawling uh, two, about two mile by two mile complex. Um, and you could call it a city within a city. It was built during the Soviet Union, and it was built the way the Soviet Union builds things, which means it's a, an essentially a concrete jungle and fortress. Uh, so it's and then what's even more is that beneath this is a very large network of underground tunnels and uh, bunkers uh, that were meant that were built during World War II beneath the, the factories to withstand a nuclear attack. Uh, levels and levels and levels, uh, you know, set up as a, as a professional military bunkers. Um, so from what I've seen as of two days ago, there were still some 3000 fighters, mostly Azov left uh, in the tunnels uh, beneath this. So if the factory was a city within a city, then this is a city under the city within the city. Um, and theoretically, they could hold out there, depending on how much ammunition, uh, food and water they have uh, for a good amount of time, because going into that rat's nest like chasing ISIS in, in tunnels uh, in Afghanistan, which incidentally were built by the United States, um, it's, uh, you, right. you know, it nullifies any military advantages and it just becomes a rat fight underground. It's a really uh, high uh, casualty a military operation for anyone. Uh, so um, I've heard some uh, rumors uh, that the Russian military just intends to flood the tunnels and have done with. Uh, they obviously haven't done that yet, so we'll see if that bears out. Right. At least in that case, they won't have to worry about not having enough water. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, black humor there. Yeah. Um, but, well, uh, on that, just one of the... I, I've heard uh, Azov uh, referred to now as Vanilla ISIS. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so, so, yeah. There's some three hundred or some three thousand uh, fighters there. Uh, also, supposedly, are some three hundred to four hundred foreign guests, right? Definitely Western uh, mercenaries there to fight no. for the Kiev regime, fight alongside the neo-Nazis. You know, great, great moral crusade there. Right. Um, but uh, there's also, you know, the possibility that there are some NATO trainers, um, uh, military trainers, uh, 
special forces uh, intelligence there. We'll we'll right. see as these last. It, you know, I, I've seen them saying last hours. Well, considering you know the the type of of the complex it is, and it's it's more like final days at least, possibly you know stretch out to a couple weeks depending on how it goes. It but they're essentially trapped uh, within this very small area, and that frees up a lot of Russian military uh, battalion tactical groups to move on to this cauldron uh, in the north. Um, and it has to be said that uh, Azov says that they've got some 500 civilians with them in these tunnels. Now, why any civilians would willingly crawl underground um, uh, with a bunch of doomed neo-Nazis right. uh, when, you know, every single day for several hours a day, Right. The Russian military announces and broadcasts on all radio frequencies in the area and everything um, that humanitarian corridors are open to get people out. Uh, so, you know, the question remains, you know, are these people free? Are they right. literal hostages and human shields? Are they the family members of the Azov? Right. Uh, there, you know, we, we don't know. We don't even know if they exist. Right. It hasn't been, actually been any proof of that. Right. Uh, but. Uh, regardless, uh, we have seen Russia for the first time use their uh, their uh, air force bombers right. uh, on this steel factory on the presumption that there aren't any civilians there, and if they are, they're being held against their will anyway. Right. Um, and uh, you know, certainly uh, the Russian military is going to use fire here, meaning artillery, uh, aerial bombardment, and the like, because. Uh, there, there aren't, or there shouldn't be any civilians there. You know, certainly none that aren't being used as, as human shields, um, and they don't have to worry about uh, collateral damage, by most accounts. You know, again, uh, let's so, remind people that only four, only eight years ago, eighty percent of the people there voted to secede from this Ukraine, yep. and, and that was from the government, not the Nazis that made the government yep. do bad things. Now, these people are not willingly hanging out with the Nazis, for sure. If there's if there's any left, again. Right, unless it's their family members, and again, yeah, if there's anyone at all, yeah. right? We don't even know that. So anyway, every day still, there's a several hours a day window that, that a ceasefire is, is called in a humanitarian corridor, but uh, no one is getting out, and with this, you know, this emergence of, of this order, order uh you know uh to um uh, shoot anyone trying to surrender russian military have encountered several times in the last few days uh ukrainian soldiers that were obviously approaching them with the white flag of surrender and had been shot in the back uh so yep yeah uh it's a pretty grim situation all around but uh you know these these are mariupol is essentially at this point and that cuts Ukraine off from the Sea of Azov, from the southeast, and opens up a lot for the development of this cauldron. Right. Um, and uh, in recent days, uh, in the last, I would say, uh, 36, 72 hours, Russia has been making uh, strikes, uh, caliber, and possibly some airstrikes on the last supply linkages into this cauldron area, uh, cutting off trains um, going in. Uh, hitting the train tracks, not the stations and so on. Uh, but um, so uh, this is uh, practically completed. And there was an initial 
uh, opening about 12 hours of heavy artillery, and the Russian military has the heaviest artillery in the world. They are a heavy artillery military against uh, these Kiev regime fortifications. And then they started a broad spectrum push forward. Um, and already uh, one small city and several towns uh, have uh, you know, um, been cleared. Um, right. This is a really important area. The concentration of, of Kiev regime forces here, it's on the outskirts of Donbass. It's basically between the uh, small cities of uh, Kramatorsk, Slavyansk, and Severodonetsk. And this is a really important area because um, Slavyansk, Kramatorsk, this is where the uprising against the newly uh, uh, installed Kiev regime started. This is this is where the first uprisings took place. The first uh, conflicts of the civil conflict eight years ago began, um, and it was uh, one of the areas they were pushed back from. So this is a hugely symbolic area for both sides, right? For for Donbass and Russia, you know, for the East Ukrainians and and for the regime in Kiev. Yeah, Slavyansk uh, was the first to try to withdraw to try to pull out of Ukraine, basically yes, to secede, yes, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, that was the heart, the, the first beat of of you know what would become the the uh, Donetsk National Republic and then then the Lukansk National Republic. Uh, so this is this has you know besides just the military value, uh, this has huge strategic value right. as well. And right. by all accounts, this is going to be a huge World War II scale and size of fight with the number of ukrainian forces there they have there's already dueling artillery they still have artillery of their own there they don't have any uh, air force left to deal with but they are heavily dug in russia is going to be using a lot of fire right a lot of artillery fire and and uh, air strikes and and uh, uh, targeted cruise missile strikes to to dislodge them there what's, the, again, what's the terrain they're, like they're yeah i'm sorry the, the terrain there yeah it's um it's still mostly flat terrain there in Donbass. You're starting to get into the, you know, some hilly region there, right. but like much of Ukraine, it's still fairly flat. Um, there, there is some uh, mining in the area. Uh, like I said, the the, the the Donbass is kind of a, a hilly area, uh, but this is still on the fringes of it. So um, it's still, you know, in general terms, it's pretty clear terrain. Because as you can um, see, it looks like, a, I mean, you come across the Dnieper River, all right, and if you, up at the top uh, near the Russian border, you've got Kharkiv. Uh, down at the bottom, you've got uh, either Mariupol or depending on how far west you want to go, Bryansk and, and Melitopol. Um, but, it, and from, you know, I mean, in, in, in essence, the part that's east of the Dnieper River it, um, doesn't go straight down, but that that's that's all in play now in this battle, right? I mean, if yeah, if you, yeah. and and then along the coast, if Russia secures Odessa, yeah. Ukraine is landlocked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, that's what's at stake. So there's also a general push at, at, at the same time uh, Kharkov has the uh, city in the northeast again a, a city that almost went to the Donbass religion uh, re, uh, you know uh, rebellion right. in 2014 against the new regime but actually the the mayor this was actually discussed in foreign policy magazine the uh, uh, oligarch uh, Kolomoisky he worked with the Ukrainian um, uh, criminal mafia 
mafia uh, in the city to help <laughs> suppress uh, he was quite proud of it uh, right. to to suppress the Russian spring as they called it at the time uh, so um, but um, you know it again uh, it's a Russian speaking city that strongly votes for the opposition to the Maidan when they're right. allowed the opportunity to do so right. doesn't mean they want to be caught up in a war um, nobody but, does um, <laughs> nobody yeah, wants to be caught up in a war does. that 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 said, if uh, Harkov uh, falls, as well as this large agglomeration of, of Kiev regime forces uh, in this uh, triangle on the outskirts of Donbass, that's that's essentially it, right? That the uh, right. the Russian forces will be able to sweep East Ukraine up to the Dnieper. Uh, the Dnieper-Petrovsk will be the last uh, holdout there, right on the river itself. Right. right. Um, and that will be Russian-speaking East Ukraine. Um, and simply either forcing the surrender, hopefully, or the neutralization of this big, this is the largest part of the Kiev regime's armed, regular armed forces. Uh, if they're gone one way or the other, and we hope it's surrender, um, uh, seeing reason, uh, the Russian military has constantly repeated, we're not here to fight you. We're here against the regime that seized power in 2014 with Western assistance, and we don't want to fight you. But, you know, when orders are being given out by the neo-Nazis among the, the ranks to kill anyone trying to surrender, and they have complete control of the information flow to the conscripts. And remember, this is a conscript army. Yeah. It, it, it becomes difficult. Um, so but once they are, uh, you know, taken care of one way or the other, then theoretically, if there is a sane, anyone sane left in the regime in Kiev, that would be a moment for a Russia to push for a negotiated peace settlement on Russian terms that realistically they should accept. Right. right? But um, we just heard from the Kiev regime's foreign minister in the last 24 hours, Kuleba, that they have no intention of any diplomatic settlement or peace solution yeah. this will be one on the battlefield as they say well there you go you know there's something about this also because you, you you sort of tickled this in my brain when you uh, stated the uh fact that the russians essentially trying to remove the government that was installed by a coup uh, you know we haven't really seen you know, there's been sort of a backgrounder to this that look there was an elected government that government was elected in a divided country with the support of uh, largely of uh, people in the east. They were yes. they, they were removed. That that government was oriented towards neutrality and or yes. well every and or closer. Right. Ukraine was not only neutral; it was enshrined in the constitution. Right. From 92 to 2014, that Ukraine would be neutral. So this is so, yeah. this sudden yeah. geopolitical flip. This is right. new. Right. It, right. it was they actually had to change uh, the constitution once right. they to do, to do power. this. Yeah. So so you and, have that, and the, and then you have this this government that's installed by. The, I mean, on a phone call by the U.S., they're picking the officials. We heard this, yeah. and. Yeah. And then they declare war, in essence, on the people in the East. They outlaw the language. They elevate this guy who murdered Russians and Jews and anybody else that got in their sight into a national hero, yeah. all of this stuff. And so after eight years of watching the people in the East get slaughtered, Russia comes in. Now, I want to compare that to the scenario in Yemen 
with Hadi and the Saudis, where you had a president not removed during his lawful term by a coup, but whose term ran out and who tried to and, stay and in office. Said, he, ran in, he ran in an election with no opponents. Yeah, and after that term I, was that over. Was election. I mean, literally, no yeah. opponents. He was the only one on the ballot. That was really a bro- <laughs> that was a brokered deal, really, after the he war, too. He was a Saudi in U.S. installed. Right, and, uh, but, but his term was up. And then there was an uprising, and he and it was, this wasn't an instigated from the outside uprising. It was a popular uprising against the guy who was imposed on them. He ran to Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia declared war on Yemen to try to reimpose him. And for the last, I don't know, six years or whatever, under that fiction, until finally even they couldn't stand him, and they did to him what Hitler ended up doing to Bandaro. They threw him in jail. That's this is. The, the difference between the legitimacy of the argument of the Russians, if they were to stand on it and say, look, we're in here restoring the legitimate government, yeah. compared to what the Saudis are doing with the U.S. help, and the U.S. has murdered tens of thousands of people as an accomplice. Well, well you know, got hypocrisy, right? <laughs> yeah. That's whataboutism, yeah. right? We don't want to hear about yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, the, the people in East Ukraine are pro-russian so they don't really count as human beings right. we know that they don't have agency they don't they right. don't deserve human rights and the people in yemen that overthrew hadi you know they they are iranian backed houthis right they're they they're, don't count they're either also not they're also have no agency and and have uh you know um no they're not deserving of lives or human rights or anything or right. you know uh anything of the like right. again the when your degree of human empathy and sympathy and outrage is directed only in line with your uh, government's hegemonic geopolitical interests, uh, I'm going to wave the BS flag on that one. You know, I just, this is April, uh, and uh, every April 4th, uh, when I uh, am on the air, I play uh, Martin Luther King's. Uh, speech at the Riverside Church delivered April 4th of uh, 1967, uh, in which he refers to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. And think about all of the people killed by that government from 1967 forward, including Martin Luther King, by the way, from then until now in the last 55 years. And we're looking at this entire scenario there, which is a creature of the U.S. government, of the State Department, and of Langley, and of the Biden administration, and of the look-the-other-way Trump administration, and the aggressive Obama administration, and, and we're seeing a body count. And at that, the body count in this war before the butcher Russians, according to uh, the United Nations uh, High Commissioner on Human Rights, as of today, 2,200 people. I suspect it's it's higher than that, but um, that's still, again, less than the civilian casualties you've seen from the U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq over an even longer time frame. And, you know, you want to talk genocide. Yeah, sorry. Yemen is a real case of mass genocide, mass starvation. That's what it actually looks like. And, of course, it's it's militarily backed. And and the U.S. has. Actually, you know, by providing, they've had special forces on the ground. They've provided uh, some drone strikes. They're providing active IS, uh, IS-4R to um, right. the um, uh, Saudi Air Force uh, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. UAE forces. There, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that that is 
and, and they're the, the the Saudis trained by in the U.S. on U.S. planes dropping U.S. made bombs. Uh, that yeah, that that is direct military support. Yeah, and guided by U.S. AWACS, by the way, right? <laughs> yes, and yes. satellite information. Yeah, right. <laughs> So anyway, we had about a minute and a half left. Um, what else do we need to know about what's happened in the last week? Um, well, I mean, first of all, obviously, uh, peace negotiations have completely ceased. Uh, I don't didn't think there was ever any real substance to them anyway. Uh, but that is uh, certainly off the table. Um, right now, there is a showdown economically. Uh, right now, of course, the, the ruble was supposed to have collapsed. The Russian economy was supposed to have been destroyed. Um, and I actually, I, I keep expecting worse than <laughs> far, far worse than what we've seen. And I, I'm still like, well, it may it may come yet, but it hasn't come yet. <laughs> and the ruble clawed its way back right. um, with through a, a series of uh, financial controls and the announcement that Russian gas and in the future other commodities was going to be linked to Russian gas uh, and gold, um, right. then uh, you know that strengthened the ruble right up. Um, right. And uh, so the economic war is not having the crushing results it is supposed to. But uh, with the announcement that uh, unfriendly countries, a country sanctioning Russia, would now have to start paying Russia in rubles, rather than in dollars or euros your right. most of the eu countries are balking at this even though they don't really have any choice they get some 40 percent of their yeah. gas uh yeah. and some 35 percent of their oil and a similar amount of coal from right. russia so they're stuck. um slovakia and hungary have agreed to pay in rubles the rest of the european has not yet and that's and yet. a showdown that's a right. chicken I still have a few hundred rubles left from the last time I saw you in Moscow, and so maybe I could be able to buy gas the next time I go to the gas station, where some of my neighbors may not. Mark, thanks a lot. We'll talk to you real soon. Cheers. And that's all the news we have for you right now. For Community Public Radio, I'm Don DeBar in New York. Thanks for listening.